0: Well, y'all have probably noticed, as I have, that uh, lately people seem angry. Have you noticed that? People seem angry. No. Well, let me give you a few examples. Uh, (laughs) You know, I, I know from a sort of like historical, psychological, like biological perspective, anger is one of those things that comes from within us as human beings And therefore, it's been a problem for people as long as we've been around. Um, But I'm talking about specifically in the last 18 to 24 months. It seems like the more and more I go out and I'm around, it seems like people are angry. And you you see the political environment that we're all living in is dominated by anger. Um, Protests and pickets and all kind of stuff. Angry people. School board meetings we watched this fall, you know, on the news, people, parents yelling, getting dragged away in handcuffs. They're angry, okay? Uh, everywhere, like social media, an endless stream of anger. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. The, the sporting events, did y'all see those videos this fall when the NFL season got started up? And it was like every wi- week you're watching the highlights of who made the best passes, who had the most rushing yards, and what fan base took out their anger and animosity on someone else. And it's like every week in the stands, people are just getting leveled and decked, laid out. People are angry. And that's a problem. Um, Abraham Lincoln said that you can determine the greatness of a man over what makes him angry. And if you think about the anger we see, I wonder what that says about our world. Like, are are we a great people to get angry over the things we get angry about? Because there are things worth getting angry about. But then there's the stuff that bothers me. And, and I found a list that I really relate with. Uh, 20 things that make you irrationally angry. Number one, when people chew their food too loudly. Yeah. You know, it, like burns you up inside. You're like, come on, man, stop. Number two, when people talk loudly on the phone in a public place. Excuse yourself and go outside before I make you. You know, that's how I feel. (laughs) When people walk slowly in a parking lot and take up the whole aisle, and you're like, come on, and you want to honk at them, but you're a Christian person. And so (laughs) you let them walk. Uh, You guys down here, the high-tech folks, you understand the anger that wells up within when you try to plug your headphones into your phone, and you realize they're tangled Again. It's like you're always having to untangle headphones or undo cords. Everything's always a tangled mess. When people click pins, when they tap their toes, when the pastor is always playing with his wedding ring, you know, and you have to let him know about it. You know, all these things, they they make us angry. And so anger is like a spectrum from the things that are important, consequential, that are worth getting angry about, all the way to the petty. And this week, you probably found yourself somewhere on that spectrum, angry about something that didn't matter, or maybe angry about something that to you did matter a lot. And then you read this story, Jesus, and the only time in the New Testament Jesus is ever described as being angry. And he's not angry about the things that I would be angry about, you know, injustice, Political turmoil. People walking too slow in the parking lot. No, he's angry about something else. And to be honest with you, it seems a little out of character. Jesus, right? The goodness of Jesus. Isn't that what we just sang about? Like Jesus who's gentle and lowly, who's meek and mild. And yet in this story, Jesus is angry. Apparently, there's something in the world. Something so despicable and outrageous that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, got angry. And I think, if you're honest, it's not idolatry, petty pet peeves. It's the hard-heartedness of religious people. People who claim to love God, and who thought their obedience to him was exemplary and commendable. Now, if I feel like I'm stepping on your toes, just know I've been stepping on my own toes all week. And I told my wife, Erin, she's my sounding board. She's the greatest gift that God has given to me. Okay, But this week I was talking to her about the gospel of Mark. And told her, I feel like it's really dangerous to preach through the gospels. And she said, why is that? They said because you you normally can get some distance between the controversial nature of Jesus. You know, you can talk in abstractions and principles, theological doctrines. But instead, Jesus dealt, most of the time, he taught, but most of the time Jesus dealt with real-life people, with flesh and blood. And it's hard not to put yourself in their shoes. And I I can't help but feel like Jesus is talking to me, that Jesus is angry at me for my hard-heartedness. And if he is, and I'm not, I'm not saying he's angry at you, but if he might be, if there's something that makes Jesus angry and it's hard-heartedness present in religious people, as a religious person, I want to understand that. I want to understand why it's so infuriating to him. And I want to avoid it with all my heart. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. That Jesus is grieved by hard hearts because they're at a step with his purpose for the world. That's the issue here with these Pharisees, and when it's present in us, it's the issue with us. So if you're with us for the first time, we've been walking through Mark's gospel. Today is like the 12th sermon, I think, um, from Mark 1, 2, and 3, and we've been really trying to ask the question is, from the Bible's perspective, who who is Jesus? We have our preconceived notions, we have our Sunday school answers, but who is he? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we've seen that Mark presents him as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament's promises about a coming Messiah. That he's the son of God. He's the king who came pronouncing the fullness of time and the kingdom of God being at hand. We know that because as the king, he starts to exert his authority over everything he can get his hands on. He exerts his authority as king over teaching. And people say, wow, what is this? A teaching with authority. He exerts his authority over demons, unclean spirits, and just like says a word, and they leave. He exerts his authority over sick people, over illness, and he just touches them or speaks the word, and they are healed, like the man with the withered hand in our story. He even exerts his authority on earth to forgive sins. and So you can imagine how all the world that heard of the good things of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus we sang about, flocked to him. And it's like everywhere, people pressing in, wanting a bit of what Jesus had to offer. And At the same time, he started facing growing opposition from the religious people. And it was challenging for him. Because like everywhere he went, there was always a group of people wanting in on Jesus' action, what he could do for them. And there were people in the background with clipboards, keeping their eye on him and making sure he didn't step too far out of line. That became a problem. We've seen five controversy stories now. This is the fifth. And really, all along, there's some conflict bubbling underneath the surface. Y'all can attest to this, that the Pharisees are asking questions. Why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? They're asking questions, accusatory, skeptical, trying to put the spotlight on Jesus as some kind of renegade religious person. But here in this story, that sort of undercurrent of conflict finally boils over. And this is a turning point in the rest of the gospel. I hope you saw in verse 6. We're going to see it briefly in a second. That after this story, they go from skeptical, accusatory questions to seditious and conspiratorial plotting to kill him. So this story really is the pivot and turning point point in Jesus' conflict, everything changes after this. What was underneath the service comes up to the top. And this time, rather than being challenged by the Pharisees, Jesus actually instigates it. And so I just want to tell you this story and then give you four truths about hard-heartedness. So listen close. Right, Jesus and his disciples are outside of town one Sabbath day. And they get into a conflict with some Pharisees. Because the disciples are picking grain, rubbing it in their hands, and eating it. And according to the traditions that the rabbis had written, that was illegal, worthy of death. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus about it, we saw this last week, Jesus says, hey, listen, they're going to be all right. They're with me, and I make the rules. And so the disciples go about their business, eating the grain, and the Pharisees walk off really mad. They leave outside the town. They come back into town, probably into the town of Capernaum, and they go into the, uh, the synagogue for church. And in walks Jesus. And I don't know, maybe sitting off in the corner somewhere, the Pharisees have found a comfortable seat. And they start watching him again. They're keeping their eye on him. They want to see if he's going to do what they think he's going to do. That he's going to make a scene. And he's going to heal this man. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says to the man they're thinking about, the man with the paralyzed hand, Excuse me, sir. Come here. I want you to stand right here. The Greek says he brought him up into the middle of the room. So he'd make sure everybody's attention's on him, like the, the spotlights were blaring on the guy. And I imagine Jesus puts his arm around him and looks at the Pharisees sitting in one corner. I don't want to highlight any specific corner, <laughs> lest you think I'm speaking of you. But, but in some part of the sanctuary, there's some Pharisees, and Jesus puts his arm around the guy and he says, Hey, let me ask you a question. Since y'all are so concerned about what's right and what's wrong for the Sabbath day, let me ask you. Is it right for me to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it right for me to save a life or to kill? This is what you call a softball. They're supposed to take their bat and knock it out of the park like the Braves did last weekend. Okay, They're supposed to (laughs) win. Okay, This is an easy answer. Had to get one of those in on you. Had to. Uh, Seven to nothing, you know. No cheating involved, I'm sure. But here's the deal, all right? This is a softball. What's right? What's wrong? You guys are specialists at this. You know it. You know the black and white. Surely you can answer me this easy question. Which is right, for me to do good or to do bad? To save a life or to kill? They can't bring themselves to answer. They're silent. They knew if they said, of course, Jesus, it's good, it's right to do good. Then when he did what they knew he was about to do in healing this man, they were going to lose all their standing and bring in charges against him. They also knew if they said it was right to do harm, they'd be the craziest people in all of Israel. It's never good to do bad, but especially on the Sabbath. So what could they do? It's a classic catch-22, lose-lose situation. So they just sat there, arms crossed. And that made Jesus angry. Uh, maybe you saw it in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. You know, I, I know Jesus knew those men's heart. He'd, he'd already seen into them and, and knew that they were questioning in themselves who he thought he was, that he could tell a person their sins was forgiven. So he sees into the recesses of their heart. He knows what they're thinking. But in this situation, the inner person that's normally hidden to everyone else was on display for everyone to see. The real condition of their heart was put on full display in their hardness of heart. Their insensitivity to a man who had a life altering, and debilitating disability. They felt nothing about it. They'd rather be right than to see the man be healed. And that was infuriating to Jesus. And so he healed the man, and as soon as he did, those guys who were concerned with doing what's right on the Sabbath immediately went out and on the Sabbath began plotting to kill Jesus. The irony there is super thick. But the thing that captured me this week, and the thing I just want to spend some time thinking about, is verse 5. He was angry and grieved at their hardness of heart. You know, the legalism of the Pharisees was really what was at play again. Who's right and who makes the rules? And I've been asking myself all week, to what extent do I identify with that impulse in them? When do I want to be right Instead of doing what I know God wants me to do. And maybe you're there. Maybe you can think of times in your life when you've uh, known full well that you were wrong, but you were too prideful to say so. And um, if so, maybe let me give you four truths about a hard heart that will help you diagnose if that's really our condition, okay? Four truths about a hard heart that we see from this story. Number one, hard-hearted people are indifferent to the needs of others. All right, if you're the type of person that writes things down... This would be something to write down. Hard-hearted people are, colon, one, indifferent to the needs of others. Isn't that obvious here? Hard-heartedness of the Pharisees is revealed when Jesus puts them to the dilemma. Which would be better for me to do in this situation? To heal this man or to follow your ridiculous rules? You know, the rabbis had heaped up, I told you last week, all kinds of extra fences ...around God's command. And so the Sabbath commandment contained in the Ten Commandments is good. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. I told you last week, it's God's gift and blessing... ...meant to remind His people of His provision and redemption... ...and to teach them to rest in Him. But the rabbis had taken God's blessing and turned it into a burden. And I read to you the 39 different stipulations... ...of the behavior that was prohibited on the Sabbath. I mean, stuff like sewing and tearing so that you can sew... It is ridiculous. I hope you felt last week how, how crazy it was. But the rabbis were realists too. and They knew that there were some circumstances that required a person to break the normal Sabbath regulations. They carved out allowances for work that was necessary to save a life. And so if your child was choking on a hot dog, they didn't eat hot dogs, but... We've all, as parents, been there and worried about our kid choking on a grape or a hot dog. So imagine your kid's choking on a hot dog or grape, and you do the Heimlich maneuver. Well, that's not really work. Under other circumstances, that would be the type of thing that would get you in trouble. But because you're saving your child's life, it was allowable. If your wife went into labor on the Sabbath, and you had to run to the midwife, get her to come back and deliver your baby, that behavior of running... And bringing somebody back to your house normally would have got you in trouble. But because your wife and your child's life was at stake, it was allowed on the Sabbath. Now, there are allowable behaviors for the Sabbath when life was at stake. So Jesus asked this question, is it better to save a life or to, to kill? But here's the deal. This wasn't an instance that was covered by the excluded behaviors. Clearly, this man had a withered hand. The Bible talks about this. It's talking about a person whose hand is paralyzed. It's unusable. Okay? And the way it speaks about it, it's like this guy has had this problem for a long time. This isn't like an acute symptom. This is something he's been dealing with. It's chronic. And so he's been living with it for a while, Jesus. He's going to be okay to go another day without getting his hand healed. That's the kind of the mindset. Like the synagogue ruler in Luke thirteen fourteen, that after Jesus healed a woman on the Sabbath the synagogue ruler said, come on guys, this is Luke 13, 14, there are six days a week for work to be done, so come back tomorrow to be healed, and honor the Sabbath. That's kind of the concept, right, to to be right, to have the excluded behaviors, but hey, this is not covered because this is not a life-threatening disability. You know, for the Pharisees, this kind of fine-lining and rule-keeping was commendable to God. It proved to them, it proved to him their zeal. But to Jesus, it's cold-hearted indifference. In fact, I love Matthew tells the same story, although he offers his perspective on it. He was there, Mark's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Luke told the story, Matthew was there. And so Matthew's story looks a little different. It contains a, a parable that Jesus told. In Matthew 12, 11, he said, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And how much more valuable than it then is a man than a sheep? So then it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and it was restored to normal like the other. Like, not only was there zeal for the law, evidence of their hardness of heart, But if it had been their own personal sheep, you better believe they would have got it out of a pit. But because it was a man that meant nothing to them, he was a prop in their conflict with Jesus. Because of that, the indifference they had to him meant that he took a back seat to their piety. God's commandment to show mercy and to walk humbly with God, to do justice was negotiated away. They're indifferent. The hard-hearted person is insensitive to the needs of others, and that makes Jesus angry. He's angry at indifference. And you can imagine why. Do you think there was an indifferent bone in Jesus' body? Do you think there was any part of him that wasn't motivated by A kind of love for people that you and I only occasionally glimpse? I mean, his whole life is the fulfillment of John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His life is an expression of the love of God. And everywhere he went, you see over and over and over, Jesus feeling for people. Not indifferent Totally caught up in whatever they were doing. I love the way Mark tells the story. We saw it a few weeks ago when the leper comes up to Jesus and busts through all the social conventions, falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Mark says that Jesus was moved within himself. He experienced a gut-wrenching pity for the man. He wasn't indifferent to this leper. He was torn, broken-hearted. You think about Jesus coming to Bethany. Lazarus, been in the tomb for three days. Lazarus' sister, come and fall at his feet. Jesus, if you had been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And here she is, making a fool of herself, crying in the middle of the road. Jesus doesn't say, hey lady, get up. Come on, you're making a scene. Jesus wept. The Jews who were there said to each other, see how he loved him. Think about the woman, John 8, caught in the act of adultery. Here are all these men ready to carry out God's law, indifferent to the life of suffering this woman has experienced. And from stage left, here's Jesus, kneeling in the dirt, writing something, confronting those men, and then comforting the woman. I mean, everything Jesus did was motivated by compassion. So when he sees people indifferent to others, the needs of others, the suffering of others, the hurt of others, it it makes him angry. I mean, he died on the cross, Paul says, as an expression of God's love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who are we to be indifferent to the needs of others? I mean, the Pharisees... Had convinced themselves it is all right to turn an eye to these people's needs. The question I've been asking myself is, have I done that? Have I grown indifferent to the needs of others? You know, I know it's impossible for us to give money to every panhandler, you know, every person with a sign at the stoplight. You can't you can't help everybody. You have limited resources and means. It'd be unwise, to give everything away to those people, right? There's a story where a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep all the commandments. So I've done that ever since I was little. He said, well, you're close to the kingdom of God. All you have left to do is sell all you have and give it to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. So I I just think Jesus calculates things differently than we do. We can't give to every person with a sign, and you can't invite every homeless person to stay in your guest room. But in our culture, Christians sort of carry this reputation of being unconcerned about the world, of being self-righteous and unloving. Uh, The phrase we always talked about was being a Bible beater. You you just walk around looking for somebody to hit over the head with the giant Bible you carry because you're so holy. You know, and that's the reputation we have. And unfortunately, many of us contribute to it. You know, we come to church Sunday in our four walls, holier. We, this is my first Sunday that I haven't worn a jacket, a sport coat or something. I was try- trying to be a little rebellious or something. <laughs> but we come in our four walls, and we, you know, we see the people we know. They look like us. They think like us. They believe like us. We hug each other. We laugh, and we go, and we see each other next week. And throughout the week... We're totally indifferent to the needs of the people around us. That's a reputation anyway. And so I would just ask you you know, are you indifferent to the needs of others? Do you do you see in yourself the kind of hard-heartedness that makes Jesus angry? Keep thinking about it. Number two, hard-hearted people distort the word of God. Hard hearted people distort the word of God. Yeah, Jesus asked him this question. You know, which is right? to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill. Um, We saw last week the Pharisees had twisted God's commandment about the Sabbath into um, a roadmap for proving their righteousness to God, a way to earn their salvation. And here, surely they should have thought back to their Bible study lessons and all the Sunday school lessons they'd had, where they knew what God required in the Sabbath to, to do good to love justice, to walk humbly with God. These are the things that God called his people to, but somehow they had managed to carve out a view of the Sabbath that prohibited the kind of loving action that Jesus showed to the man with a paralyzed hand. That was inappropriate and unlawful. And I wish that it wasn't a pattern in their lives, but we, we know enough about the Pharisees from the Gospels to know that this is something they often struggled with. They often found themselves using God's Word not to lead them into deeper obedience and deeper faithfulness, but to excuse an unrighteous life. And I think one that's really, really upsetting is in Mark chapter 7. It's just a few pages over. And uh, we're going to see this in depth, I imagine, Lord willing, sometime in the spring. But in Mark 7, 6, Jesus gets into a conflict with the Pharisees over the place of tradition, over man-made rules in their religion. And uh, so this is what he says, Mark 7, 6. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Y'all are going to be excited to hear that sermon, aren't you? It's like (laughs) we put ourselves there. I'll go easy on it. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men neglecting the commandment of God, you hold it to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Think about that. You are experts. You want everybody to know you're an expert. Well, you are an expert. You're an expert at setting aside God's commandment so you can obey your tradition. For example, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death but you say if a man says to his father or his mother whatever I have that would help you is now Corbin that is to say given to God you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or for his mother thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition tradition which you've handed down and you do many such things as that imagine this, I mean the first century no social safety net no retirement accounts, pensions, social security Nothing like that. If once you got past the age of working, you didn't have the resources to live, you relied completely on the generosity and care of your children. So imagine that you get to that 65 mark, 62 and a half. They throw a party for you at work. They load up your office in the back of your car and they send you away. And you show up at your kid's house ready to move into that mother-in-law suite that they built for you. And they tell you, wouldn't you know it, Mom? We were going to build that mother-in-law suite, but instead we gave all our money away. Sorry. Imagine how gut-wrenching that would be. That would be terrible. But then imagine that your kid did that and said that it was okay because you would gave it to God and God was pleased that you'd sacrificed everything. Have a nice day. That's what they were doing. The money that they were supposed to use to take care of their parents and keep the commandment to honor father and mother, they'd put in the offering plate. They'd get gotten rid of it. Which is God honored more by? That's a good question, right? Is God honored more by me loving my parents, by providing for their needs, or giving my money away? According to Jesus, it'd be better that you did the responsibility that God gave you as a child, honor your parents by taking care of them, than devoting all your wealth to God. So that's the kind of thing these guys did. They twisted and distorted the word of God to promote their own self-righteousness. They added to hard-hearted indifference this disregard for God's Word. And unfortunately, history tells us that this is a common temptation for God's people. Like, even in the first century, the first century church, we think of it as that perfect and pristine thing, like before traditions came in and messed everything up. In the first century, Christians were led astray by men who twisted and distorted the truth of the gospel. You might want to look at 2 Peter 3 with me. 2 Peter 3. Which is pretty cool because this is the only chapter in Peter's letters where he gives a shout out to Paul. And he says some of the stuff that Paul wrote in his letters was really tough to understand. So if you're ever reading Romans and you're like, I'm so confused, you're not the first person, it's right here in the Scriptures. But I want you to see verse 16 and 17. At the end of 16, he says, The untaught and unstable distort the, at, distort the, Paul, the Apostle Paul's letters as they do the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. And so he says this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness. Peter's warning them. There are some guys who take the things Paul wrote and the rest of the scriptures and they twist them in ways that they are not meant to be twisted. He talks about it back in chapter 2, verse 18. He says, they speak arrogant words of vanity and entice you by fleshly desires, by sensuality. They're those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by whatever a man is overcome, by this also he is enslaved. They're the guys who who said, hey, listen, we've heard the gospel message. That one is saved not by works of the law, but by the grace of Christ, by faith. And so since my own works don't contribute to my salvation, what I do doesn't matter. They're the people Paul's talking about in Romans when he says, what should we do? Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? They thought, hey, since our works are nothing before the Lord, we can do whatever we want. They twisted the Word of God to excuse their licentiousness, their sensuality. They're not the last. You look at the history of the church, you got the Crusades, using the Word of God to justify holy war, the evils of slavery, domineering husbands, reminding their wives what the Bible says. That's not the truth. You're distorting the Word of God to excuse your unrighteous behavior. Abusers who would enshrine their abuse in the Bible. It's despicable. And it makes Jesus angry. The Bible's not something that's flexible. You know, and we can pick and choose a verse here and there to excuse any behavior we want. It's the Word of God that we submit to and allow to guide us in everything we do, say, and think. Jesus is the standard. We're not the standard using the Bible to justify. We follow his lead. And that's what these guys are guilty of. They're guilty of distorting the word of God. I wonder, have you been guilty of that yourself? Number three, hard-hearted people oppose the work of God. They distort the word of God and they oppose the work of God. See, the Pharisees' biggest problem was they failed to recognize Jesus' true identity? If you get that wrong, everything else is wrong too. It's like my brother Ryan told me. If you get the top button off, the rest of the shirt's not right. <laughs> and it's true. That's true. If you if you don't get right your understanding of Jesus, your life is gonna be out of whack. You're gonna stand in opposition to what God's trying to do around you. These men had a pretty clear understanding of what they expected the Messiah to be about. They thought he'd be a political ruler who one day would just show up in Jerusalem, set up his throne in the temple, and kick out all the oppressors from the promised land. Then he'd reign again as David on the throne, just like Psalm 132 promises, and God's people constantly reminded him. You said David's son was always going to be on the throne. Where is he? So when Jesus shows up, a carpenter by trade an itinerant preacher and miracle worker from a backwater town called Nazareth, they were pretty sure he was not the Messiah. He didn't fit the mold. And so everywhere they went, they followed him looking for opportunities to point that out. Because it seemed from their perspective that maybe people were starting to think he was the Messiah. And that was wrong. So they set themselves in opposition to him. Even to the point when Jesus exerts his kingly authority, giving first fruits that the kingdom of God was at hand by healing a guy's paralyzed hand, they thought the best thing they could come up with, the best course of action, was to go out and plot with the political guys to do this guy in. They were totally opposed to the work God was doing. And you've got to believe that that's the way many Christians are today. They're like Jonah, who after he preached a message of impending judgment, went out to the east of the city of Nineveh and waited to see if maybe God would finally come to his senses and obliterate those sinners off the face of the earth. He was angry that God had been forgiving. They're like the prophets. Jesus said, "You're always persecu- your father's always persecuted the prophets. There's not a prophet I sent to the people that wasn't opposed. Prophets just trying to preach God's word. People want nothing to do with it. So they get rid of those prophets and find their own prophets who's going to distort the word of God and tell them the things they want to hear. you got to think about those who oppose the church. The Apostle Paul, who in his zeal for Judaism, traveled around the ancient Near East, going from town to town, finding people who were following Jesus, throwing them in prison and taking them back to Jerusalem so they could be tried and executed. But he's on his way to Damascus. A blinding light shows up in heaven. He falls off his horse and he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. He realized in a flash. He thought he was being zealous for God's work. Turns out he was standing in stark opposition to it. He was standing in the way of what God was trying to do. And I think there's no more obvious place in our world where we see Satan's activity than in opposition to the work of God. you think about it, from the beginning, that's Satan's goal. God creates this world, puts people in it. They're going to live to glorify him completely. And as soon as Satan gets the chance, he throws a wrench in the gears trying to stop the good thing that God is doing. And it seemed to work. You know, here Adam and Eve living in perfect harmony, walking with God. Next thing you know, they're outside of the garden, walking around in animal skins, banished from the presence of the Lord. Standing opposed to the work that God was trying to do. But it goes on and on and on. Until finally you get to Mark 8, and Peter hears Jesus say, Hey, at this point I'm headed to Jerusalem, and I just want to give you guys a heads up and forewarning. That when I get there, the religious leaders are going to conspire with the political leaders. They're going to betray me, and they're going to crucify me. And Peter says, you know this, there's no way, Lord, will ever let that happen to you. That's satanic opposition to the work you're trying to accomplish. When in fact Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind on man's interests and not on God's. Hard-hearted people consistently turn their eyes away from the truth of God that's staring them in the face. And as a result, they oppose the work of God all around them. I think it happens today. Satan wants to distract us from the mission God's given us, and he'll throw all kinds of stuff in our way. He'll try to divide us. He'll try to make us think that, hey, you know, are we sure we really want this? talked about it a few weeks ago, the the young seminarian who had taken up the role of a mission church planter in a trailer park. And after months of working there, the church had a major event, and he brought all the kids from the trailer park to the church. And pretty quick, the church people got together with him and came up with a plan how they could keep those kids separate from the normal kids who came to church. That's standing in opposition to the work of God. I remember hearing the story about a young kid who lived in a neighborhood around a church. He came from a broken home, incredibly poor, always dirty, never wore shoes, but always would ride his bike around a church through the church parking lot. Especially when people were there, when people were coming into church, he was always around. As soon as the people got inside, He'd park his bike, and he'd stand outside the church with his face pressed against the window. After a few weeks, my granddad, who was a pastor of this church, told one of our ushers, Hey, go out there and tell that kid to come into church. So the usher did. He went outside. Son, why don't you come into church? I don't have the right clothes to go in that church. What, what kind of church, what kind of church either explicitly or implicitly forecasts and broadcasts to the world? You're not welcome here. A hard-hearted church opposed to the work of God in the world. That's what it is. A church that doesn't seek to tear down every barrier that would prevent people from hearing the word of the gospel is a hard-hearted church. They're everywhere, because there are hard-hearted people everywhere. And they get together in churches, and it becomes a hard-hearted church. And I don't know if you're there, I don't know if I'm there, to be honest with you, but I want to be exposed by God to let me know if I am. Because number four, hard-hearted people will experience the wrath of God. Mark 3, 5, Jesus looks at them with anger. The word for anger is the Greek word orge. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. One time it talks about anger in the church. 1 Timothy 2, uh, Paul says, First of all, I say for people to pray everywhere without anger and dissension. So throw that one out. Okay. There are 13 times in the New Testament where the word orge is used. Twice it's talking about Jesus. The other 11 times that's translated, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. Rather, God's an uncomfortable thing to think about because we like thinking of Jesus, the meek and mild, the gentle and lowly. We forget that our God is a consuming fire. He's a, he's a a flaming hot ball of holiness, righteousness, justice, and truth. And a just and holy God can't be in the presence of sin, can't even stomach the thought of it. And so while he's merciful now, he promises one day to act in justice and righteousness towards the sin of man. And that action, that judgment of sin, is his wrath. It's his holy anger towards that which is despicable to him. So 11 times it speaks of the wrath of God. Once it speaks of the anger of Jesus... In Mark 3, 5. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is angry. The other time it shows up in reference to Jesus is in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation 6, 12, John witnesses the removal of the sixth seal from the scroll that the Lamb of God is opening. And so, you'll have to read the first five on your own. But I want you to hear this sixth seal being opened and what John saw as a result. This is a revelation of what's going to happen, okay? I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there came a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong. And every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So, the, the New Testament's consistent that God has appointed a day when He will judge the sins of mankind. John sees it, records it in Revelation chapter 6, that everybody's going to be assembled. Doesn't matter what you did in your life or how much money you made, everybody's going to be there. The obviously wicked, like murderers, they'll be there. Those who abuse people, they'll be there. Liars will be there fraudsters will be there and apparently there'll be some hard-hearted people there too people who are surprised to be there they shouldn't be after all they oppose the work of God in the world so they're like prime subjects for his wrath people who stood in opposition to him in this life can expect to face his judgment when they stand before his throne they were distorting his words They twisted them any which way they could to excuse their life of unrighteousness. So they're prime candidates for judgment. They're indifferent to the needs of others. I mean, why wouldn't they feel his wrath? Why wouldn't they be there? That's why I think what Jesus does in Mark chapter 3 verse 5 is a foretaste. It's a picture of the kind of wrath he's going to pour out on people when he returns. And there are going to be religious people there. People who think that their good deeds are going to justify them before the Lord. They're going to find out, no, you are hard-hearted. When I looked at you, I was angry and my heart broke. There are going to be religious people there who knew the word of God front and back. In fact, they knew it so well they could quote it. They're going to face the wrath of God because when he saw them, he was angry and grieved. And I know this, and it's not just speculation, because he says in Matthew chapter 25 that when he returns... He will assemble all the nations of the earth. And on the right, he'll put one group he calls sheep. And on the left, he'll put another that he calls goats. And he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry. You were indifferent and gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty. You were indifferent and gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger. You were indifferent and didn't invite me in was naked and you were indifferent and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they'll say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't take care of you? And he'll answer them. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Church, Jesus is angry and grieved over hard hearts. There's no place for hard-hearted people in his kingdom. There's no such thing as a compassionless Christian. And so as we leave this morning, I would just ask you to ponder. Do you have a heart like this? Are you indifferent to the needs of others? Or do you feel as Jesus feels and do you love like Jesus loves The truth is, by nature, each one of us is totally self-absorbed and indifferent to everybody but ourselves. Uh, The Bible says we're that way because we inherited a sinful nature from our first parents who were created by God to enjoy perfect fellowship with Him but rebelled against His authority. Because of that, every person who's ever lived is born not neutral but dead in their trespasses and sins. They're blinded and indifferent to the truth of God. Because of that, we are bound for a day of judgment. But the Bible says that God did love the world. And he sent His only Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. It says, God demonstrated His own love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means that there's hope for hard-hearted and indifferent people, too. That Jesus died on the cross for our indifference. For our hard heartedness, and it's better than that. Because he doesn't just want to forgive us of our past record of wrong and all the times we've turned a blind eye to people in need. But he wants to change us and remake us into his image. The promise of the Old Testament was that when the Messiah came, he was going to make a new covenant with his people. And that covenant would be identified by a replacement of a heart of stone with a heart of flesh where they would feel they'd want to do what pleases Him. They would want to live in a way that honors Him, in a way that reflects His glory, kindness, goodness, and mercy to the world. And He wants to do that in you. He wants to take your indifferent heart, and He wants to replace it with His heart, the heart that loves sacrificially, that counts others as more important than themselves, that willingly lays down their rights for the good of others. And This morning, He wants you to know that today, like today. Today. It says in Hebrews. Today if you hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. As in the rebellion. But as long as today is called today. today's the day of salvation. And now is the accepted time. So you've heard the voice of God speaking to you. Do what you need to do. If you need to pray and ask Jesus to forgive you of past sins. Do that. If you need to ask him to Take your heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, do it. But we're coming up on time, and I want to say this last thing. The guy who gets overlooked in the conflict is the man with a withered hand. And this morning, I want you to know Jesus' heart for you if you feel broken. If you've been hurt by hard-hearted people. If you've been looked over and wondered if anybody cared for you. You know, Mark 3, 5 is the only time in the Bible when Jesus is described as angry. There's also another one-time thing. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus tells the world what his heart is like. Not hard-hearted. He says, come to me all who are weak, weary, and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Here it is. I'm gentle and lowly, and heart. If you feel broken, you feel overlooked, you feel like nobody cares about you, I can tell you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Messiah, has a heart for you. He loves you. Forgive those hard-hearted people, those hard-hearted Christians and pastors. And trust Jesus, who is so good. Will you pray with me?